Well, I want to do this morning what we don't do often and perhaps not often enough. We do not live by headlines, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And yet this morning, I think it's important to uh, address a matter that has been in the news a great deal. I know it's been a concern of yours at some level over the last few weeks, and that is namely the war in Israel. And I want to do that for a few reasons. First of all, it is on our minds and on our hearts, and we need a biblical footing to kind of think about it accurately. Secondly, there is a temptation, isn't there, to fear in the midst of this, that somehow this is going to spill over and out of Israel and throughout the Middle East and potentially into being a world war and and being sucked into that ourselves. And it's always good to think through things before you get there. Uh, third, I'm, I'm very concerned, frankly, about what I see in the news going on around us and in our culture. There is a growing tendency in this country and around the world somehow to see the Jewish people <clears throat> as though they are to blame for all of this. Uh, that somehow they are the oppressors in all of this. And finally, it it seemed fitting to me on the heels of last week's message where we heard Peter preaching Christ to a group of Jews in Acts 3. Uh, This morning we get a further glimpse, if you will, into that time that Peter was speaking of in Israel's history foretold by the prophet Zechariah when the Jews will look on the Messiah whom they pierced and they will mourn over their sin having rejected and crucified the Christ. So for those reasons, I want to address this war today and uh, we want to really look at it in light of four questions that will kind of help us gain some sort of biblical perspective on that fateful morning of October 7th. 2023. We're going to look at it very simply in in, in this order. We're just going to ask the question, what happened? Secondly, why did it happen? Third, how does all of this end? And finally, how should we respond to all of this? Let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we're grateful that you're sovereign as Jeff prayed and that nothing but nothing happens in this world apart from your fingerprints being all over it, your sovereign uh, declaration, your purposes, your plans are always carried out in this world. And yet, Lord, we confess that oftentimes we're perplexed by the things going on around us and troubled by them. And I pray this morning that you would help me to bring your word to bear on these things and that you would teach us what you would have us to learn and understand and Lord in all of it that we might be settled again on the reality that you are sovereign that you are good that you have a plan and a purpose that you are trustworthy and Lord that we need not fear but instead engage with your word by faith and trust you as things go forward so help us to that end we ask in Christ's name amen Well, what is it that happened? I don't know if you're very aware of the 
history of the promised land, it's been in the news as long as I've been alive, to be sure, and much longer than that. It is a a history that is complex politically. We're going to pick up just after World War II. In 1947, the United Nations voted to divide the land of Palestine into a Jewish state and into an Arab state. Israel accepted the UN partitions and became a nation on May 14, 1948. No Arab nation was willing to accept the UN partitions. And so when the British handed rule off and left on May 15th, that is one day after Israel became a nation, the armies of all the neighboring Arab states, that is Lebanon and Syria, Iraq and Egypt, and Transjordan all attacked the one-day state, one-day old state of Israel, seeking to obliterate it completely. Over the last 75 years, there have been endless attempts to wipe, seemingly endless anyway, to wipe them out, that is Israel, and push them, as you hear on the evening news, night by night, from the river, that is the Jordan River, to the sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. That slogan you're hearing chanted over and over again is a, is a call to the Palestinians to arms and to shove Israel out of existence and off of the land. Israel over the years has offered numerous times to the Arabs land in exchange for peace. And in 1967, the Arab League had a summit where they established what they called the three no's principle. No peace with Israel. No negotiations with Israel and no recognition of Israel. No peace, no negotiating, and no recognition. Some years later, in the not-too-distant past, in 2005, the Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon offered the Palestinians the Gaza Strip, pulling all Israelis out of there and all of the Israeli military out of Gaza and giving that territory to the Palestinians as a peace offering. It was not long after that and after the resettlement of Palestinians into the Gaza Strip that Hamas, an Islamic terrorist organization, infiltrated the region and set up its operations in and among that civilian population. Hamas has a charter, and you can find it online. I looked it up. It was written in 1988. The group is relatively new as far as these Islamic organizations go. It was in 1988 that they wrote this charter in which they assert that every inch of Palestine, every inch of the promised land belongs to them and that peace is not possible unless they rule it all. And the jihad, that is holy war, 
is the duty of every Muslim against Israel because they are seen as expansionists who occupy what Hamas calls Islamic territory. It was this group, Hamas, that brutally attacked Israel on the morning of October 7th, and that without provocation. They fired rockets into Israel and they raided villages near the Israeli-Gaza border. And these things I know that most of you are aware, but Hamas forces attacked Israel both by land and by air and by sea. They killed at least 1,300 people in the attack. They injured thousands more. They took over 220 civilians and soldiers hostages. And of those hostages, they were from actually 35 different countries. They brutally and indiscriminately murdered Jewish citizens, infants, pregnant women, children, men and women of all ages, the elderly. Most of them were unarmed civilians who were shot in cold blood. And according to many reports, most of them were tortured before they were ultimately murdered. Some of them were even burned alive. This is the biggest war in Israel since the Six-Day War of 1967, over 50 years ago. It stands as the greatest single slaughter of Israeli citizens since the Holocaust. This is no minor skirmish in the Middle East. This is a big deal, and it seems to be escalating quickly. That is what happened. The question is, how are we as believers to process all of this and to understand it biblically? And that brings us to the second question. Is there any biblical explanation for why it happened? And the answer to that question is yes. The Bible does give us insight into this. That is our second question. Why did it happen? And you can answer that question, of course, on many levels. You could say it happened because it was politically expedient and the, the situation and the worldwide political arrangements uh, availed the opportunity for Hamas to do this. You could also say, biblically looking at it, you could say it happened because men are depraved and men do unthinkable things. There was a time in my life... <clears throat> when I used to encounter these things and think to myself, unbelievable. I'm, I'm old enough now to have seen enough of it to know that this is not unbelievable, given the heart of man. There'll be a day on this planet when the restraint is removed by God, where things like this will be increasing and they will be worse, which seems unimaginable to me, but there is a day coming. We could answer the question, why did this happen, by simply saying that, that mankind is deceived and deceived by false religion, and this is the kind of thing that goes on in the name of God that, of course, has 
nothing to do with the true God and the true scriptures and the, the true religion that is Christianity. Another way of looking at this is simply to say that this all happened because of something that is far more diabolical even than those explanations. Really, to answer the question biblically, why did Hamas attack Israel, we need to understand two passages, the first from the book of Genesis and the other from the other end of your Bible, and that is a passage from the book of Revelation. So turn with me to begin with to Genesis chapter 15, where we begin to trace this tension that exists between Israel and its Arab neighbors. The stage for this conflict was set, at least from a human plane, when God promised the land of Israel to Abraham and to his descendants forever. That promise is made first in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and it is there that God makes a unilateral promise to Abram, soon to become Abraham. He makes a covenant with Abraham that is very significant in scripture all the way through from the Old Testament through to the New. And it is in this covenant that God promised Abraham offspring, that he would have many children, that they would be like the the stars of the sky, that they would be like the sand of the sea, that he would also be blessed and be a blessing to the world And he was promised land. And I want you to pick that up with me in chapter 15 where this covenant is both formalized and then ratified. It's formalized in verses 4 to 8. Let's read together. Actually, we'll pick up in verse 1. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord, Yahweh, what will you give me? As I go on being childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no seed to me, behold, one born in my house lives as my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your seed or your offspring be. Then he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it and he said oh lord yahweh how may i know that i will possess it and god goes on then to make a formal covenant he ratifies it and we read skip down to verses 17 and 18 now it happened that the sun had set and it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram, saying, to your seed I have given this land 
from the river of Egypt, and there's a debate about whether that means the Nile or another lesser river that's further north of the Nile. But whatever that southern border is, it stretches from there to the Euphrates River. That is the promised land. Skip over to Genesis chapter 17. And look at verse 7. Again, he is reiterating this covenant and he's speaking to Abraham now having given him a new name and he says I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will go forth from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you and verse 8 I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God promised the land to Abraham and to his posterity forever, as long as the earth remains. And you say, yeah, I know the story, so where's the problem? Well, the problem is this. The conflict arises because Isaac, the son of the promise, is not the only son of Abraham. He is not the only descendant of Abraham. There are two distinct people groups that can trace their lineage back to Father Abraham. And you remember how that all played out. Abraham and Sarah were in their later years. They were childless. God had made this promise to Abram that he would would have descendants as the stars of the sky. And it goes to reason that without a son, there would be no way to to see this this long lineage and this great nation of people that he had been promised. And so God promised a child that an heir would be born to Abraham and to Sarah in their old age. And they believed God. But God didn't answer that question quickly enough for Sarah and Abraham. And they decided that they would help God work this whole thing out. And you'll remember that Sarah gave her handmaiden to her husband, Hagar, and Abraham had a son with Hagar. And that son's name was Ishmael. He was the son, the scriptures tell us, of the flesh, Isaac of the promise and Ishmael of the flesh. This was mankind trying to work out God's promises, and rather than simply waiting for God to fulfill his promise, Ishmael is born between, Sarah, or between Hagar and, and Abraham. We read about Ishmael in chapter 16 of Genesis, pick up in verse 11. The angel of Yahweh said to her, that is Hagar, further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you will call his name Ishmael. 
because Yahweh has heard your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will dwell in the face of all his brothers. This is critically important if we are to understand the conflict in the Middle East. Ishmael is the father of all of the Arab nations. Isaac, the son of the promise, is the father of Israel. He is the father of the Jews. Both groups trace their lineage back to Abraham. And that's where the conflict arises, at least humanly speaking. And again, if you look down at chapter 17 and verse 16, we see that God reiterates this promise of a son from Sarah. Look at it. Verse 16, and I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a son be born to a man 100 years old, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a son? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Sarah and I cooked up another plan. There's another way we can work this out. Lord, we've helped you along. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. Critical words. I will establish my covenant with him, with Isaac for an everlasting covenant, and for his seed after him. As for Ishmael, he says to Abraham, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly, and he shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And that's precisely how it all played out. Surprise, surprise. Abraham gives rise to this son Ishmael, and God, in fact, makes a great people out of him, and, and the Arabs spread all over the Middle East, over the, over the millennia. And on the other hand, Isaac is born, and, and Israel then is, comes out of his loins, and they become a great nation. And as the descendants of Ishmael flourished, eventually covering the Middle East, we go down the, the timeline of history, about 2,500 years, and there is a descendant from Ishmael who is a self-proclaimed prophet by the name of Muhammad. And it is Muhammad who would then serve to unify the Arab nations through the religion 
that came from him. He was born in Mecca in what we would call today Saudi Arabia in, in 570 A.D. That is 570 years after Christ. He claimed to have been called by Allah through the angel Gabriel to be a prophet. He claimed to have received the Quran, the holy book of Islam, directly from Allah over the course of 22 years. And through Muhammad's religion, we see that the Arab nations are, are unified. Initially, he had a trouble really getting it off the ground. He struggled to see it established, but before long... It spread far and wide, and it spread far and wide mostly by subjugating peoples and nations militarily. And I, I think it goes without saying, though I don't know anymore, that it ought to be with even a cursory reading of history, or if you've just been living with your own eyes open in the last 30 years, it should be obvious that Islam is not a peace-loving religion. No matter how many presidents say so, and no matter how many times the press tries to impress that upon us, it is not that, as many liberal Muslims will say in our day, that Islam is essentially a peace-loving religion that's been hijacked by a bunch of fundamentalists. The very name Islam means submission. And from its earliest days, it spread and it conquered by use of the sword. And so you look at groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, like ISIS, the Islamic Jihad, the Palestinian Authority, Al-Qaeda, all of these groups are the groups that actually take the teachings of Muhammad to heart and live by them. They seek to rigorously impose them, not only in their own lives, but over the lives of all whom they can bring under the flag. John MacArthur says Islam in its purest form is violent, and the Quran calls for the death of infidels as expressing the very will of Allah. That's a good summary statement. What's intriguing is that as Islam began to spread through the Arab peoples, eventually it becomes the glue that bonds everybody together, which is why really what's going on in Israel is not so much a geopolitical debate as it is a religious war. Today there are 456 million Arabs descending from Ishmael found in 22 countries in the Middle East and North Africa. You compare that to the fact that today there are about 7 million Jews descending from Isaac living in one country, Israel, that's about the size of New Jersey. Somebody, I don't recall who it was, was asked, what, what is the greatest argument for the veracity, the truth of the Bible? The response was very quickly, Israel. 
There is no reason that this country, small as it is, insignificant as it may appear, should even be on the planet given the enemies that surround her. And they are that. But this is the crux of the problem from a human vantage point, and that is that both Ishmael's descendants, that is the Arabs, and Isaac's descendants, that is Israel, make a claim to the land of Canaan, to the promised land. They both believe it belongs to them, tracing their lineage back to Abraham. But the Bible is unequivocal and crystal clear on this. The land belongs to Israel. Curiously, and I did not know this, but Islam itself recognizes that fact. Islam recognizes that the land was originally given to Isaac and to his descendants, but they claim that the Jews forfeited the right to the land because of their unrighteousness, and so God gave the promises to a people, in their own words, worthy of it. This is one reason why we see what we see today in Israel. This is just another conflict. It's the latest conflict between the descendants of Abraham over the promised land. But there is a second and more diabolical reason for Hamas's brutal attack, and we need to turn now to our second passage, all the way at the other end of your Bible, all the way out to Revelation and chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 paints a picture for us that portrays the reality that throughout human history, Satan has been at war with God and with his Messiah and with his people Israel and with the church and that this war is only going to intensify as the end draws near. As we come to verse 1, we're introduced to the first of three characters in this drama. Look at it. A great sign appeared in heaven and a woman. There's our first character. A woman. Clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now, who is this woman? Well, all of this ties back into the latter chapters of Genesis. And what we find out about this woman is that she is Israel. You'll note in verse 2 that she was with child. And we find out in verse 5 that she gives birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That could be no other than who? The Lord Jesus Christ. This is obviously, plainly Israel, this woman that we find in the first couple of verses. We meet another character, our second character in this drama who is portrayed as a great red dragon. We see that in verse 3. Then another sign 
appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. Who is this dragon? Well, we're told down in verse 9 that the great dragon was thrown down, that is, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan. He is pictured in this text as a dreadful seven-headed monster that rules the world. He is violent and he is powerful and he is very deceptive. And we are given insight into this devil, into this dragon, into Satan in greater detail in other passages of Scripture. Ezekiel 28 gives us a tragic picture of Satan that we're told that Satan was a created angel who was originally created in splendor and glory. And here by the, by the book of Revelation, we see that he is nothing but vile and vicious. And Satan, we're told in Ezekiel 28, was created perfect in angelic beauty. He's called there the anointed cherub who had the indescribable, unbelievable privilege of dwelling immediately before the throne of God. He was created with the seal of perfection. Verse 11 tells us, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 15, we're told in Ezekiel 28 that he was blameless from the day he was created until unrighteousness was found in him. Satan looked in that proverbial mirror on the wall and asked, who is the greatest of them all? And he saw himself. He grew exceedingly proud, and because of the beauty that God had given to him, in pride he tried to lead a coup against God in heaven. Isaiah 14 gives us another picture of Satan and tells us in verses 13 and 14 that, that this, this demon, this devil, this dragon, who once was a glorious angel, determined to, quote, raise his throne above God. He determined in his own heart that he would, quote, make himself like the Most High. And thus began the cosmic war the longest war, beginning in the earliest chapters of Genesis and stretching all the way to the end of the book of Revelation across the annals of the whole of history. We find this war between God and Satan. And it will include the holy angels of God and the devil's demonic horde. It will be a war between good and evil, between life and death, between light and darkness. And it is a war, ultimately, that will touch every corner of earth. It is a war that is fought between God's children and those of the devil. The initial theater of this battle this long war began in the hallowed halls of heaven and then we're told that the war was, was thrust down upon the earth when Satan was cast, expelled out of heaven and God cast him out and thrust him down and 
If you look in verse 4, you'll notice it says, this is Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, his tail, that is the serpent's tail, the dragon's tail, swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. That is a reference to one-third of the angels that were in heaven that rebelled alongside of Satan, and they too were ousted from heaven and cast to earth. And these have become what we know today as the demons. And since the fall in Genesis 3, this planet has become yet another theater of this long war against God. And perhaps the primary theater, though we do see the war being waged in the heavenlies time and again in Scripture. And when you can't get to the head of the house, who do you go after? It is the children. And that brings us to the end of verse 4. You'll notice that Satan directed his venom towards the people of God and Israel and ultimately, the Messiah in particular, look at verse 4 at the end. It says, and the dragon stood before the woman. That is Satan and his hordes standing before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That is an allusion to Herod, you'll remember, who intended to have all the two-year-old male children killed in the town of Bethlehem. Like I said, this war is working itself out from heaven but upon the earth. And throughout the Old Testament, attempt after attempt was made to destroy the line of Messiah, which meant destroying Israel. And so Satan tempts Adam and Eve and brings sin into the world and with sin, death and into bondage and judgment. And we have that, that first hint at the gospel, if you will, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity between you, that is, that is Satan, and the woman, that is Israel, between your seed and her seed. And he, the offspring of the woman, that is a reference to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus Christ, will bruise you on the head. Christ was going to kill and bring a fatal wound upon the devil. And you, devil, shall bruise him on the heel, which is a reference, of course, to the cross this prophecy portrayed not only that this war would be carried out throughout the whole of human history, but this prophecy was a crystal clear death sentence upon Satan. And it is here that we gain insight really into the ongoing conflict between the serpent's seed and Eve's seed, the offspring, that would eventually climax into a one-on-one -on -one between Satan and Christ. 
It is this verse, really, that amounts to the plot line of the entire Bible. This ongoing conflict, this long war, you need to keep this in mind as you read the scriptures. An understanding of this helps you to grasp the storyline of scripture. If you just think for a moment, and, and we'll just barely touch on some of them, but you think for just a moment the number of times in scripture that that Satan sought to destroy the messianic line and the people from whom the Messiah would come. There was the flood. There was the famine in Israel. There was the enslavement to Egypt and then the attempt of Pharaoh to kill all the firstborn males of Israel. There was the battle between David and Goliath. There was that incredible... last-minute save, if you will, when, when, when Athaliah sought to put to death the whole royal line of David and succeeded at it, except for Joash, one child who was hidden by the king's daughter. You remember Haman, who sought to murder all the Jews, and he himself was hung on the gallows for his treachery. When we come to the New Testament, having failed to wipe out the people of God in the Messianic line, Satan desperately sought then to kill Christ himself. And so Herod goes on, as I said, to murder all the male children under two years of age in Bethlehem. And then there's plot after plot after plot throughout the scriptures. Jesus' life is under threat constantly. How many times did he say his hour had not yet come? Over and over. Satan was behind all of that, motivating it. And finally we come to the cross where it appears Satan has finally won and the battle is lost because the Christ is put to death. And yet on the third day God raised him from the dead and conquered death and Satan and sin. The point is this, that throughout history, through the whole of history, it is assault after assault, wave after wave, as the devil seeks to take a whack at a God whom he can't touch. And when you begin to see the backdrop of all of this in the Bible, you begin to see the undercurrent of this war all over the place. Sinclair Ferguson very insightfully said, quote, we begin to see that the whole Bible story can't be understood on just a human level. This happened and then that happened. Instead, he says, we see that what happens in history is the spillover of Satan's hostility to our God. He acts behind the scenes. He doesn't have God's power, but blinded by hatred and pride, he seeks to destroy God's purposes and his people, end quote. Well, there's a woman, there is a dragon, and there is a third significant character in this battle. And you find him in verses 5 and 6. We saw it already. Israel, she gives birth 
to a son, to a male, to a male child who is to be the ruler of all nations and he will rule with a rod of iron and this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ ruling over the nations and earth's rightful king. And it's intriguing, isn't it, that what you see in this text is that Satan's plans are utterly frustrated. He can't get to God, so he goes after the woman. He can't get the child from the woman. And the text tells us that this child, look down at it again, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so this verse, as it were, pictures Christ It goes from his birth to his exaltation. It skips over his ministry. It's as if the verse just rushes past the life of Christ and the crucifixion and all of that to basically say, look, Satan failed. He sought to kill the child, but he couldn't. The child, the one who's going to rule as king of kings and lord of lords, ascended and was exalted and caught up to the throne of God. In other words, Christ was victorious. And then we're thrust all the way out to the tribulation and we see that Christ being exalted. The devil then, frustrated as he is, will seek to destroy all the Jews once and for all. He's going to go after the woman, and the woman's going to flee into the wilderness where she will be protected by God. Look at verse nine or verse seven. I'm sorry. Look at verse, uh, verse six. Notice that the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That is three and a half years. That's half of the tribulation period. In verses 7 to 9, we see again the the war shifts back to heaven. We see that Michael and his archangels are waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. You can see the battle going head to head. But the dragon and his angels were not strong enough, verse 8, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is a a battle that is raging in heaven and resembles the battle that we saw back in verse 4. Satan and his angels are again cast out of heaven, and he turns his rage against Israel, persecuting her intensely, And he will pursue her and he will hunt her and he will seek to destroy her. Look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But God is going to deliver Israel. But the two wings of the great eagle, and that's imagery again from the Egyptian deliverance way back in the wilderness wanderings in Exodus 19.4 
When God delivered his people, he says, on eagle's wings, so he is going to deliver his people here. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she should or could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time and times and half a time. That, again, is a reference to the second half of the tribulation where they will be rescued and nourished from the presence, it says, of the serpent. And the devil was try his best. The serpent poured forth water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Israel will escape and God will nourish them supernaturally. They're in a place where they're going to be cut off. God will supernaturally feed them as he did Israel in the wilderness wanderings and they will they will be delivered and when Satan sees that he cannot get to God and he cannot get to God's son and he cannot get to the people of Israel, you look down at verse 17, it says the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went off to make war with the rest of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the witness of Jesus. In other words, there are some, and this may be a reference to the 144,000 This may be a reference to Gentile believers, but there are some who will not be protected and he will go after them violently. In fact, you see this played out in chapter 17 and verse 6 where false religion is portrayed as a woman that rides a beast. It's a harlot and it is a woman who is representative of false religion and she is drunk, that text says, with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Why did Hamas attack Israel? Well, there was a promise made to Abraham. And there's a long, long war that has been going on between God and Satan and the offspring of the devil and the offspring of God throughout history. That brings us to our third question. How will all of this end? Well, a short answer is this. God will preserve Israel just as he said he would. And the word of God specifically states that God will never forsake his people. Psalm 94 and verse 14 declares dogmatically that Yahweh will not abandon his people in a softer tone, in a, in, a, in a nurturing tone, you have this heartwarming expression by God where Zion says, this is Isaiah 49, verses 14 and 15, Zion, Israel said, Yahweh has forsaken me. Here's the thought of the Jewish people. Yahweh has forsaken us, and the Lord has forgotten us. God steps in and asks this question. Can a woman forget her infant? Can a woman forget her infant and have no compassion on the son of her womb? I mean, if there was ever a rhetorical question, it is this. Can a woman forget her infant? That is rhetorical as it gets. 
Well, God says there, there's a greater possibility that a woman would forget her infant and that a, a mother would have no compassion on her children. He says, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 37, thus says Yahweh, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be searched out below, then I also will reject the seed of Israel for all that they have done. Can you take a tape measure and go to the heavens and measure them out? Can you go to the foundations of the earth, wherever those might be, and figure out how the earth does not teeter, how it stays in orbit, how it stands? Can you figure all that out? You cannot because it is beyond you and it is beyond me. And he says, until someone's able to do that, there's not a chance I'm going to forsake the seed of Israel And then he adds this phrase, even for all that they have done. Beloved, God will not forget his people. He will not abandon them, no matter what they do. He will enter into judgment with them, yes. He will chastise them, yes. He will use Satan to chastise them. He will use the nations to chastise them. He will give them over even into their enemies' hands for a time, but he will never finally abandon Israel or let her be destroyed. He cannot because he has made promises to them, and he is a God who cannot lie. They are his people by covenant. And that's why Paul raises that Rhetorical question again in Romans 11 and verse 1 where he says, has has God rejected his people? And then that strongest denunciation that you can put together in the Greek language, may it never be. He tells us in verse 29, and we saw it last week, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, Israel is currently apostate, isn't she? She has rejected her Messiah. She has killed the prophets, and she is under the judgment of God. That judgment, we saw this back in the book of Mark, was partially fulfilled in AD 70 when Rome utterly sacked Jerusalem. Titus came in and destroyed it. And the Jewish people were dispersed. They were dispersed like leaves in a fall wind. They were blown all over the earth. And for thousands of years, well, I should say for centuries, for 1,500 years, 1,600 years, even into the time of the Reformation, Israel was not a a nation. Israel had no land. And then it went all the way out until 1948 before they were finally settled in the land. That that is a long time to be cast to the wind. And we have seen their suffering, haven't we, over the centuries? 
I mean, it, it really is astonishing. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered why it is that Israel is, is the whipping boy of the entire world? Why are so many people against so little a country? Why is it, even in our present situation, that Israel, attacked without provocation, is somehow viewed as getting their just desserts as though somehow they're the oppressors? Nothing could be further from the truth. Why is it that every other country has the right to defend itself, but not Israel? Why is it that that all the nations around Israel can relentlessly send missiles in their direction, but if anything flies back, Israel's an oppressor? The answers to these questions are tied up in understanding this long war and why the world is so biased and so prejudiced, anti-Semitism exists because the spirit of Antichrist exists in this world and in the hearts of the devil's people. Israel's forbidden to defend herself by this world against her aggressors, and it will be this way, brothers and sisters, even to the end and especially through the period of the tribulation when God will refine his people. That's why the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is specifically designed for the purification of Israel that God may save them in the end. The nation by and large will remain hardened and under God's judgment until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until the last Gentile believer God saves out of this world and he, he fulfills all that he had planned for this period called the time of the Gentiles. And so on the one hand, you see that Israel is protected by God. On the other side, you see that God is, is, is disciplining Israel and we need to recognize that even in the midst of all of this, in our home fellowship group, somebody asked, well, do you think if this goes longer that, that somehow public support is going to wane for Israel? Yes, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Because we no longer live in a country that has the biblical undergirding to understand why we support Israel. People saw the kinds of things that Hamas did splashed across the internet and their TV screens, and there's an initial emotional reaction, but you can see that support waning already, can't you? Listen, beloved, God is not done with Israel. And what we find in the end is that at his second coming, a day is going to come when God will save all of the living descendants of Abraham by his grace. That is not to say, and that is a great confusion within the American church at least, that somehow God's going to save every Israelite who ever existed because Israel is God's chosen nation and all of them are going, going to heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that all of those who are living after the, the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation, 
That is the people that makes up that crowd that Paul speaks of when he says all Israel will be saved. Zechariah 13.8 tells us very clearly that two-thirds of the Jewish population is going to be wiped out during the tribulation. Zechariah 13.8, and it will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last. That is the two-thirds of the Jewish nation. But a third of it will be left in it. Now listen, here's God's promise to that third. And I will bring the third part, that one-third that are rescued and and delivered through the tribulation, I will bring that third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say Yahweh is my God. God will intervene and rescue that third That is the remnant of Israel that will constitute the entire nation at that point. That is the group of people upon whom the verse over in chapter 12 of Zechariah and verse 10, that is the group of people upon whom God will pour out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they they will look to me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. That is Christ, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. It is that group that will weep over their, their, their error, their sin in condemning Christ. They will see that Jesus is their Messiah. They will repent. They will believe. And God promises them in chapter 13 and verse 1 that in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It is that day, Paul writes in Romans 11, that the Deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, that is Israel, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins, not if I take them away. It is that remnant that Paul is referring to when he says, and all Israel shall be saved. Well, We need to wrap up. After Christ returns, he will rule and he will reign from David's throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. The Bible tells us that Satan will be bound, cast into the abyss. He'll be incarcerated for that thousand year period of time and the nations will know relative peace. And all of this awaits a final judgment at the end of that thousand year period When unbelievers will, over the course of that thousand-year period, repopulate the earth, Satan will be released at the end of that period to lead one final rebellion against the Lord. Jesus will slay them with with his sword, and the battle will be quick, and Christ will defeat his foes, and he will cast them forever into the lake of fire. 
We read of that in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. And when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then, beloved, the longest war will be no more. Then will come the time we read of in Revelation 21 and verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Note these words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. The war will end, but we have a ways to go. How should we respond to all of this? Very quickly, let me give you just three responses. Number one, first, if you do not know Christ here this morning, I call you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved out of this evil and adulterous generation. Don't miss the fact that those people who went to bed on the evening hours of October 6th had no idea what would hit them in the morning of October 7th. You don't know when your day will come. You don't know when that moment is And there is only one safe harbor. That is Jesus Christ, who alone is the mediator between God and man. You cannot get to God in any other way. He is holy. He is beyond your capacity to live a life good enough to warrant heaven. You must look to one who lived that life in your place. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You must look to the one who paid in his own blood upon the cross for the sins that you've committed. And unless you are clothed in his righteousness and unless your sins have been forgiven you, I tell you that at that point, if you die, you will suffer eternally in hell. And God gave his son in love for your soul. Don't reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is the time to believe. Secondly, for those of you who are in Christ, I want to call you to combat your fears with faith. May our response to this thing demonstrate that we are different than the world. May our response as spirit-indwelt believers 
show evidently and plainly, not not that we're anxious and not that we're panicked and not that we jump all over the political, you know, tug of war, not that we're just angry with a group of people. My friends, we exist in this world to put on display the great and glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to love people in his name and to call them to salvation. Nothing is out of control. God works all things, Ephesians 1.11. God works all things, including things like this, according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. Our God is wise and he is good and he will supply grace to help you in time of need. Stay focused on the work that we've been given to do and live a life to be expended on behalf of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, pray and pray earnestly. Pray for the salvation of Jews and Arabs. 1 Timothy 2.1 tells us that God wants prayers and petitions offered for all men, wanting them to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. God is working in all of these things redemptively, and he is, he is wanting us to engage in that work by praying to him for Jews and Arabs alike. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We heard that in our scripture reading today, Psalm 122 and verse 6. Pray for soft hearts. Pray that the veil that now covers their eyes would, would be lifted and that they would see in the gospel the very face of their Messiah. Pray that the Messiah will come and with it his kingdom. Pray that the Jews might know peace with God through the blood of the Messiah, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray for the church in the Middle East. Pray for courage and gospel boldness. Imagine being there as a representative of Christ and the challenges that that would bring. Pray that they too would not be fearful, but as Jeff prayed earlier, faithful even unto death. Finally, pray for our country, for our political leaders, that they would act wisely and biblically. Pray for our pastors in this country, that the truth would be proclaimed unapologetically. Pray for the church in this country, that we would go out with the gospel and that it would be made clear. And finally, give thanks to God for the country in which we live and for the relative peace that we have known in our lifetimes. When I see that kind of thing that I've seen, it reminds me of what, what a gift that is, how easy that is to overlook. And our fighting men have been brave and much blood and much honor and, and nobility has existed and there's been a lot of sacrifice on behalf, on behalf of many Americans that we might live here, but brother and sister, behind it all is the God who has graciously given us this as a gift and we, we have known, haven't we, what it is to live in peace and we have reason to give thanks. Well, let's pray, we'll sing our final hymn and then you're dismissed. Father, these are heavy matters, and they are matters that touch each one of us, and yet we are glad to know that you are in 
our corner. That, Lord, you are a God who will never forsake your people. We know that you are a God who does nothing willy-nilly, does nothing without planning, does nothing without being purposeful. And so everything that unfolds, Lord, is from you in some way, shape, or form, and your fingerprints are upon it. And Lord, we want to be faithful to you and faithful to your call in the midst of all of this. We do pray, Lord, for your church in this world and ask that we would be faithful as faithful ministers of the gospel, that we would be faithful and generous with our money and with our time and with all that we have, that we might spend and be expended on your behalf and on behalf of those that you've given us to love and to reach. We pray, Lord, for restraint in this war and that unsaved people might have the privilege and opportunity to hear the gospel. We pray for Israel that you would open our eyes to the truth. And Lord, we're thankful that you have a plan even for the end and that you will bring all these things to pass and that in the end we will know ultimate peace where there will be no death, no tears, no war, no suffering. Lord, you are a good God. We all confess it and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me encourage you to be a part of a home fellowship group tonight. <clears throat> Excuse me. It'll be a good opportunity to talk through these things amongst yourselves and to, to consider uh, the things that I know are on your heart and give you a chance to interact with. We, we covered a lot of ground today, yeah? Give you a chance to interact with all of that yet again and internalize some of it. Um, and you take advantage of that. And if you are not part of one of those home fellowship groups, you can sign up for one simply by contacting the office or just show up and contact the office later. May God bless you. Go forth in his grace and with gratitude in your heart. Amen.